0: The first reading is um, on page 15 of the Church Bibles. Um, page 15 of the Church Bibles, um, and is Genesis 14, chapter uh, chapter 14, verses 17 to 20. That's page 15, Genesis 14, 17 to
1: 20. <coughs> After Abraham returned from defeating Chedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came to meet him in the valley of Shaveh that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine.
0: He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand.
1: Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Our second reading comes from Hebrews chapter 7, which is on page 1205 in the church Bibles. I'm going to be reading the whole of Hebrews 7. 1205. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, the law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people. That is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they, are also, they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descendant from Levi. Yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die. But in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar." For it's clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we've said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who's become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless for the law made nothing perfect and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy blameless pure set apart from sinners exalted above the heavens unlike the other high priests he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself for the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever.
0: Well, thank you, Nicholas, for reading that to us. I think you're preaching next week, so you're, you're well set up. for setting me up with uh, such a, a clear reading of that. Let's pray with uh, those words open in front of us. And we pray, as we've been urged by this letter more than once, that you'd help us to fix our eyes on Jesus tonight, Father. We pray it for his name's sake. Amen. Now, I want to take as my text for today uh, one verse from the last paragraph, which I've noticed I'm largely leaving out, um, but I'm definitely not leaving out verse 26. Such a high priest truly meets our need. It's describing the Lord Jesus. And those are wonderful, wonderful words. I suppose if I was to do a, a straw poll of people as they finished shopping in Cambridge, city centre right now, and started heading home, and ask them what they felt was their most vital, pressing needs. I doubt that the need of a priest is one that they would mention necessarily. There's a guy called... Um, Abraham Maslow, he devised a well-known hierarchy of different needs. And he placed our most vital physical needs at the base of the pyramid, uh, breathing, eating, sleeping, that sort of thing. And once those needs are met, he placed other higher needs which motivate us, like self-esteem and loving relationships. Now, we probably all want to echo the importance of those needs, but what about the need of a priest which the Bible places very high. Can anything actually be more important than that? Well, the central chapters of Hebrews have got this theme of Jesus' high priesthood running throughout them all. We come back again and again to it. Because of the underlying assumption that the human race needs a mediator between God and humanity... Uh, More than anything else, we cannot have a relationship with God without a mediator. But Jesus Christ is precisely such a high priest. And he says, such a high priest truly meets our need. Think of Jesus coming into the world. If we'd needed more than anything else physical health, God probably would have sent a doctor. If the human race's greatest need had been financial, more money to solve um, society's problems, maybe God would have sent an economist. If we needed more knowledge and understanding, God might have sent an educator or a philosopher. If at rock bottom what we need is entertainment, maybe God might have sent a sportsman. I mean, if rugby was the great force to bring the human race together, as some people think it is, that might have been a thing to do. But actually none of those are the greatest need. Because our deepest need is for atonement, at one moment with God, God sent a high priest, a go-between, to bridge the gap between a holy God and sinful men and women. That's it's an unfamiliar thought to us, but any Jew in the first century would have understood exactly why a high priest was important. For years, the temple in Jerusalem had had a priesthood operating to offer sacrifices for sin. It went all the way back to Aaron, on through to the, tri- the tribe of Levi, from father to son, father to son, down the generations. And it was a great tradition. But these poor Hebrew Christians who get this letter, we think they're they're feeling they've had to say goodbye to all of that. Now they've got no temple, no sacrifices, and so far as they can tell, they've got no priest either. And it must have felt like they'd abandoned their Jewish roots completely for this new thing. And they were bound to ask whether the change was worth it. I don't know if you've heard the story about a man ordering a taxi. And when the taxi comes, he gets in, And a short way into the journey, he tapped on the window to get the driver's attention. Whereupon, the driver went completely out of control, crossed two lanes of traffic, and mounted the pavement on the wrong side of the street. When they'd both got their breath back, the passenger asked for an explanation. ''All I did was tap on the window,'' he said. ''What on earth happened?'' ''Oh,'' said the driver, ''I should explain. ''Today is my very first day as a taxi driver.'' For years, I've been driving funeral hearses. (laughs) Human beings are creatures of habit, and change is always inconvenient for us. These poor Hebrew Christians felt the inconvenience of their changes acutely. And not surprisingly, when persecution comes their way, we read later on in the letter they'd had public insults, property confiscated, prison sentences, they're wondering to themselves, have we made a terrible mistake? Why not go back to the high priest we had that we're familiar with? And this passage is part of the writer's answer to that question. He's writing to demonstrate that Jesus' priesthood is better than anything that the Old Testament priesthood could offer. Jesus' priesthood is vastly superior. In fact, he belongs to an altogether Different, an entirely different order of priest. As the final verse of the previous chapter we looked at last week puts it, chapter six, verse twenty, he's become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I'm aware that that name itself is enough to confuse us. Mel, who? Somebody once asked. But I want to encourage you to think positive at this point. Uh, you know how some people are sort of glass half full people, and others, characteristically. We'll see the same glass as half empty. But I want to encourage us all to be glass half full types today. Not to say to yourself before we've even started, oh, this is really difficult. What was that stuff in Genesis 14 about? I'm giving up. No, be positive about it. Um, You see, Melchizedek is only mentioned in three places in the Bible. That bit in Genesis, uh, Psalm 110, and here in Hebrews. Hebrews. And if you think about it, that's brilliant. Because it means that in just 25 minutes, we can manage that. We can be experts and know just about everything there is to know on all things Melchizedekian. Now, the name is significant because, as we've already seen, this is, different, this is a different priesthood to the normal Levitical priesthood. That was the familiar one. But then in the middle of the Old Testament, we didn't have this reading, comes out of the blue in Psalm 110, God announces the arrival of a new order of priests. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, he says. Every Jew knew that that psalm was about the Messiah. But the psalm also said that the Messiah would be a priest too, which of course is a perfect fit for Jesus. Not only is he the anointed king, the Messiah, but he's a priest too, and a permanent priest at that, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So if they'd been reading their Bibles carefully, they would have recognised that a new order of priests would one day be introduced. And what was true about this rather shadowy figure, Melchizedek, would prove to be even truer about Jesus. In our chapter, we learn two things about this new order of priesthood. It's a superior priesthood to start with. And I think that's implied in verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. So, as I've mentioned, in Melchizedek, there's two of the most significant positions of leadership. King and priest get fused together in a way that never normally happens in the Old Testament. I don't know how familiar you are with the storyline of the Old Testament. Do you remember when King Saul offered sacrifices himself because Samuel, the priest and prophet, wasn't around? That was big trouble in uh, 1 Samuel. But not apparently a problem for Melchizedek because priest and king get fused in him. So any priesthood like his... Would be superior. And you see that superiority again in verses 4 to 7. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. That's referring back to our reading from Genesis 14. Now, the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is their fellow Israelites, even though they are also descended from Abraham. This man, however, didn't trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. So all you need to know by way of background there is that in Genesis 14, we didn't have this bit of the chapter read, Lot ends up in trouble and Uncle Abraham comes to his rescue. He attacks a federation of kings to get him released. Um, He gets Lot safely back, and he collects all the plunder and the loot. Then on the way home, he meets Melchizedek. And two things happen there. For a start, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And then furthermore, Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth, or a tithe, of all his plunder. And every fibre of our being is supposed to feel that in both cases, the blessing and the tithe... That's the wrong way round. If you're hardwired to sort of think, isn't Abraham the great one? You would think that. Now the blessing bit is, is easy enough to grasp. The lesser person is blessed by the greater. Um, with royal protocol, it's obvious who's superior. We're royalists in the rectory. Um, when Susan and I and the girls once sent a birthday card to the Queen, we got a lovely reply from a lady in waiting. But, do you know what? The reply said nothing to us about what a privilege it was for the queen to hear from us. What a blessing we would granted her. Because we are not her superior. Frankly, it was a blessing to have any reply from her. The greater blesses the lesser. It's a bit less obvious in the matter of the tithe. He reminds them that in the Old Testament, the Levites collected a tithe. And if you know about how the the nation was set up, they had to. Um, They were the priestly tribe. They had no land of their own. So they couldn't farm. They couldn't live off the land themselves. Everybody else had to provide their living with these tithes. But Melchizedek, he says, wasn't a Levite. So Abraham is giving a tithe to a non-Levite. And this would all be obvious to you if you were in this culture. You'd understand it straight away. He's giving a tithe to a non levite In fact, there's more to it in verses 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. This is a bit mind-bending, isn't it? Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Hadn't been born yet at this point. He's saying that because the tribe of Levi would one day come from Abraham, when Abraham paid the tithe, in effect, Levi his descendant, was paying it through Abraham to Melchizedek. So if you'll forgive the pun, Abraham had his Levi jeans on at the time. Sorry. QED, Melchizedek trumps Levi every time. Jesus' priesthood is superior. So says our writer, don't go back to something which, even though it came from God was never superior to this priesthood. Second main thing he says about Jesus' priesthood is this. It's a permanent priesthood. And this is his point in the second section of the chapter. He makes it clear to begin with that the Levitical priesthood actually achieved nothing itself. So you can see that, I think, in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. We've got a, a saying that's familiar, I'm sure, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Hebrews here is saying that the introduction of a new priesthood only makes sense that the old priesthood was ineffective. And everything about Jesus' priesthood was new if you look at verses 13 to 14. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe. one from that tribe has ever served at the altar, for it's clear that our Lord descended from Judah and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. It's new. So this priesthood trumps the other one. Why would God introduce a new priesthood if the old one was okay? And that's his conclusion in verses 18 and 19. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. The law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And what he's saying bluntly is, is this, that the old system was never set up to work permanent never brought people near to god it was pointed to something that would do that in fact you could say that the whole temple system really showed how far away god was imagine how it felt for the average jew turning up at the temple on the day of atonement you couldn't actually go into where the action was you stayed in one of the courtyards while just one person went in once a year after amazing preparations for this terrifying close encounter with Almighty God. That high priesthood didn't bring you near. It only really served to emphasize how distant the average believer was. Now at last he's saying a better hope is introduced by which we can draw near to God. On what basis? Well, he's told us in verse 16, it's on the basis of an indestructible life. Um, That's connected with the verses about Melchizedek, which I conveniently skipped, um, particularly verse 3, back at the start of the chapter. If you could just look at that, it's describing Melchizedek back in Genesis 14. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. There's a bit of a a debate on. I'm not sure whether this means literally that the character who met Abraham had no parents and never died. It's just that in Genesis, it's this book of the Bible that's full of family trees and full of deaths. Here is one character whose lineage and death is never mentioned. It's rather odd, he just appears in the storyline from nowhere and then vanishes almost as quickly again. It almost gives the impression of someone with no beginning or end. And in that sense, he is like the Son of God. Apparently, the way he's described in Genesis is not accidental. It's a sneak preview of Jesus' permanent priesthood, one that operates on the basis of an indestructible life. And that's in complete contrast to the Levitical priesthood, where the priests did die. So that's where his argument is headed in verses 23 and 24. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing an office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. That's the crowning glory of Jesus' priesthood compared to the Old Testament priesthood. Any priesthood based on ancestry, passing the privilege down the line, father to son, father to son, is defective, he's saying. So short-lived. Josephus, the Jewish writer, reckoned there'd been 83 generations of priests by his time. You only get one trained, and then he dies, and you've got to start all over again. How much better to have in Jesus a priest who is still alive today? The Old Testament priests are redundant. Now that he's come, they can collect their P45s. They aren't needed anymore. And they will never be needed again. And in Psalm 110, God has sworn an oath to that effect. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And he's there, alive in heaven, today to prove it. It's really silly, if you think about it, to imagine that any mere mortal can introduce us to God effectively. Um, We sometimes think that way. Big top um, Christian conventional festival, the service leader there uh, who does an amazing job, the person that gives us Holy Communion, or the inspirational Christian friend whose example spurs us on. Um, We sort of love to pray with them. We think, oh, we feel really close to God when we're with them. The big-name Bible teacher. Nobody else brings God's truth to us like them. We might easily think that way of mere mortals. And they are all doing good things, helpful things in our relationship with God. But don't rely on them... To bring you near to God or they will let you down. They cannot meet your deepest need for a relationship with God. They don't even begin to compare with Jesus' ministry as high priest. Look at verses 24 and 25 again. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. You think of the doubts that sometimes plague us. I wonder if you have these questions ever. Will God hear me? Will God answer my prayers? Does he accept me now? Will he accept me when I die? Am I secure? Am I really loved? They all boil down to one question is he able to deliver as a priest and Hebrews 7:25 answers emphatically he is able he has a permanent priesthood he can save forever because he lives forever i wonder if you saw how he emphasizes the ongoing work of jesus for us there the work of paying for sin is finished But Jesus' work of praying for sinners is still going on. He intercedes for us. And those mighty prayers, this is amazing, isn't it? They're forever in the Father's ears to to keep you a Christian today if Jesus is your priest. I don't know if people enjoy Pilgrim's Progress, but there's a lovely moment in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian is shown a fire with someone pouring buckets and buckets of water onto it to put up the flames. Yet, amazingly, the flames don't go out. And then Christian is shown round the back to see how the flames kept burning. And lo and behold, there's a person there pouring on oil, unseen. So however much water is tipped on, the fire still burns. Anyway, the explanation that Christian, the main character in Pilgrim's Progress, is given is that Jesus' intercession for us is like that person pouring on oil. So however much the devil tries to put the fires out spiritually for us, Jesus is a permanent priest and he's interceding for us and he will keep asking God to supply what we need to keep us going. That's what Jesus is doing. Okay, but is there nothing here for us to do? You've been sitting very quietly listening. What is the practical application for us? Well, there is no direct command that I'm aware of in those passages, but there is a description of Christians in verse 25 that I want to leave with you. A Christian is somebody who draws near to God through him, through Jesus. Notice in that little phrase there that the verb is a present tense. It's not enough that I drew near to God through Christ however many years ago when I prayed a prayer of commitment in the past, not not enough that I thanked God then for forgiveness through Jesus' death on the cross. A Christian isn't someone who simply drew near to God in the past. A Christian draws near to God today and every day. And that's the value of a high priest like Jesus. We don't have to be at a distance from God. Through our high priest, we can draw near to him today. I've challenged for some of us, maybe, to draw near for the very first time to God. You've never actually done so. Well, with Jesus as a high priest to introduce you to God, wonderfully you can. It's possible. I suppose for many of us, the encouragement of this passage will be to keep drawing near to God and doing it repeatedly. He wants us to do that. Jesus is in heaven, interceding for you, precisely so you can do so. And it's when we fail to do that that our spiritual lives get blunted. There was a young man once who went to the foreman of a logging crew to offer to work. And the foreman said, okay, let's see how you get on. Took him to a huge tree, which he chopped down very skillfully. Wow, you can start Monday. He told him, well, he worked on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, in this new job, Thursday. And then he asked, well, i going to get my paycheck, please. Come on Friday, he was told, but that's the end of your job with us. Bit surprised. Oh, you're falling behind, you know. You were in first place for speed on Monday, but come Wednesday, you were in last place. Well, the young man protested, I'm a hard worker, I arrive first, I leave last, I've been working through my breaks. Then the foreman asked the key question, have you been sharpening your axe? Oh no, said the man, I'd be much too busy for that, working far too hard for that. Now it's a bit of a parable of what happens spiritually often. We're so busy doing other things, maybe even good things. Caring for our families, serving God the best we can in the workplace preparing to lead a home group in one of our midweek meetings, doing those things, that we actually neglect the relationship which undergirds all that. And that's like failing to sharpen your axe. And of course, it leaves us ineffective. When we fail to keep drawing near to God, however well we were doing once, we suffer spiritually And often, I suppose, it's the problems we encounter in life which stop us doing what we know to be right. Uh, My wife is brilliant at reminding me of this. So so whenever I'm magnifying one of the problems we have out of proportion, she will just ask me, where does that situation leave you with the Lord? Which is shorthand for saying, don't let this problem here make you forget that God loves you, that he longs for you to draw near to him, that you've got a priest in heaven. Because... If the situation that's upsetting you makes you forget that God loves you and wants you to draw near to him, once it's the battle is lost already. No, however serious the problem is, God has already met my deepest need for a relationship with him by sending this high priest. So get the lesser problem in perspective. Um, Make that problem a matter of prayer. Remind yourself in God's presence what we believe, that God loves us and has a priest for us. He's waiting to hear from me. And that relationship is why Jesus died. It's why he's interceding for us now. So says Hebrews, such a high priest meets our need. Therefore, draw near to God. Well, let's pray and do that as I finish up now. We thank you that Jesus is a high priest who truly meets our need, one who's holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, and one whose work is permanent. He's not going to let us down like other priests might. We thank you for his amazing power as a permanent priest to keep us close to you, Heavenly Father. And we want to draw near in him right now. We thank you that because of Jesus, if we trust in him, we could not be, closer in one sense to you than we are. Thank you that our problems and difficulties are put in perspective because our deepest need has been met, a need for a priest. And we pray you'd help us, therefore, to keep drawing near this week, not to forget about him, not to feel unloved or on our own in the world, but to know his amazing love for us. And we pray that your power and your grace will therefore really be at work in our lives. In Jesus' name,
1: amen.